Hey guys, it is Lori here. I wanted to pop in really quick before we start the episode that we recorded a few weeks ago, but we are recording this bit uh, right after, um, I don't know what they're going to be calling it on Friday <laughs> when this right, releases. Right. I keep calling it the storming of the castle, uh, but in the United States, uh, there was People are calling it a mob, a riot, um, just when a protest turned into people entering the Capitol. Uh, I, I honestly am not ready to process that. I haven't done my lamenting, grieving, forgiving, but I just wanted to talk generally. Today we are on the episode. Matt did a conversation. Who is it with, Matt? Michael John Cusick. With Michael John Cusick about porn addiction and helping to uh, take crack that. I don't know how to say that. To be become unaddicted. <laughs> What's the right words, Matt? Overcome. Overcome. <laughs> I'm doing great, guys. Uh, porn addiction, even in a pandemic, or even when there's crisis in the capital and in democracy in the United States, or whatever is going on, for those of you in the UK, there's a, you all are back down and shut down. So I wanted to go around the horn and start with you, Matt, Steve, and me, and say, ask you, when there's a new crisis that happens, or, you know, the COVID gets worse, et cetera, or you're shut back down. What are your unhealthy coping real quick? And what's your healthy coping? Um, and then we're going to toss it to Matt when he hosts this episode by himself with John Michael Cusick. So Matt Krieg, right now, how do you respond when a crisis happens? What's your unhealthy? And then what's healthy? Um, I, I think my unhealthy is real easy to identify. I either spend my time on my phone and look at sports scores or whatever or read things that are not important um or or i just become very consumed with reading the news and and all the ins and outs of what's going on um, i think my most healthy response is something that that happens kind of in between those two extremes of either escapism or hyper consumed by it it's it's to to really look and say okay this is going on um, to try and pray about it, but then to look at, okay, what is an active thing that I can do within the circles of people that I actually interact with mm. in, in order to either speak into that or to, to just really realize that God has me in place dealing with things that I am supposed to deal with and, and to, not be, to not be kind of swayed left or right by whatever is going on in a grander kind of national scale. And that makes a ton of sense as a husband to me and dad, but as a therapist too, like to help be that grounding um, anchor representing the anchor of our souls. Steve O'Dell, unhealthy and healthy when crisis arises. Yes. Okay. So um, I would say unhealthy in a sort of like in the moment kind of crisis where it was like I woke up this morning. I did not expect that this is how this afternoon was going to go. Uh, I would say I kind of bury my head in the sand. I sort of hunker down. I don't at all think, what can I do to help others in this? You yeah. Know? Um, for long-term things like the coronavirus, you know, lockdowns and, you know, after lockdown, after lockdown, I find myself getting just internally angry, like seething. Yeah. You know, um, but when it's a quick thing, it's more just shut down. Mm. Um Healthy, I think I would say, surround myself with people who can remind me of truth or who need to be reminded of truth and who I can kind of bring that to. So just looking for ways I can help, but also looking for the people of God reminding me of him, of his truth and his faithfulness. 
Love it. Uh, unhealthy for me, I can catastrophize. Mm. I can go straight to, you know, what? It's it's both cynical, like whatever. It's all going, it's just going to be stupid anyway. And then also like, well, it's probably X, Y, Z. All the capitals are going to get stormed right now, you know. Um, and so that's not helpful. And then I can also do lots of avoidance screen, you know, looking for who's saying the exact right perfect thing that I can think about and say, yes, you're awesome or exact wrong thing that I can get mad about. So that's just gross, gross. In ideal, in my ideal space, honestly, I don't always know how I feel in the moment. And so for me, I already am anticipating I need a little Bible and journal sesh and prayer sesh to actually think about how do I actually feel and get to that place of anger, forgiveness, whatever it is. And then after that, um, maybe say something on a more public scale, but I don't know. So that's why we're not exactly saying anything on a public scale hours fresh after it happened, because my heart's not in a place yet. I don't think any of our hearts are ready for that. So we're just telling you how we respond. Guys, we'd like to hear how you respond. Uh, but if you are someone listening or you know someone who may appreciate this episode, um, just you know, give it a listen and let us know what you think about the porn addiction and how we can overcome it. There's the verb, Matt. Even in a pandemic or even after this latest crisis. Guys, we're praying for you. Feel free to email us to let us know how. See ya. Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 155, Getting to the Root of Porn in a Time of Turmoil. Welcome. I am your host, Matt Krieg. Yes, me. Lori is not here today. The usual host is with our kids. We are still in lockdown here in Michigan. But the topic we are covering today is more than in my wheelhouse. So here I am taking the reins, taking the lead as the host of this thing. And I'll need some prayer from you guys to just make sure that it goes smoothly. Um, I do have with me today, not actually with me, but in studio, <laughs> Steve, the most professional radio voice among us. Hi, guys. Right, and then I am looking forward to today's conversation on how to eradicate porn, yes, even now, as we are in a pandemic. But before we dive in, I want to remind you that this episode is on video, posted on YouTube and Vimeo. You can search up Lori Krieg, my wife, and that's where you'll find it there. Um, and if you find those videos, you will see our guest today, and his name is Michael John Cusick. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be talking with you. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But guys, if you don't know Michael, he is the founder and CEO of Restoring the Soul, a ministry offering intensive counseling and soul care to Christian leaders worldwide. He's a licensed professional counselor, woo -woo, <laughs> spiritual director, speaker, and author of the book that we're going to get into today called Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath the Sexual Struggle. He has served as an assistant professor and adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University and Denver Seminary. He has two master's degrees in counseling and psychology. Michael, we're excited to dive into the conversation with you today. But as always, we want to begin with a little bit of a lighter question. And so we'll start with the question of the week from last week. So the question we have is, what does your workspace look like these days? Do you sit on a couch? Do you have a desk, a big old wooden chair somewhere? How do you roll? What a great question. Um, I, uh, I have an office 
that we moved into exactly one year ago this week, uh, about two miles from our home, and it's a, our ministry center. And I'm 56, and I said to my board of directors, this is probably going to be my last office. I'm not planning on going anywhere anytime, but I'm certainly not planning on moving. And so uh, it's about 400 square feet. And I have three offices in one. I have uh, this uh, podcast studio, little thing with the backdrop. I just oh, bought nice. this iMac on my swivel. And then I have my counseling area kind of over in the corner with a couple leather chairs and a leather couch. And then I've got a work area. And so during the pandemic, since it's so close to home and we have, uh, as of June 1, started meeting with clients face to face, I go to the office. It's my sacred space. Um, I always change out the scene behind me against this brick wall. And, uh, you know, what we do is we help restore people and people come here in the midst of their personal uh, earthquakes and fallout. So today I've got the Eucharistic cup and the, the brain to signify embodiment. And um, it's it's just my favorite place to be uh, because it's, it's what I would have in my home if I had space. <laughs> nice, well, I love it. And I like the little fallout shelter sign behind you. I mean, I know there are some, there's just some intense things get, can, that can go on in that office. So it's very appropriate. Um, Steve. Was there a listener response that you resonated with? Yeah, I really appreciated this one. Uh, It was from Rebecca, and she said, I am a nomad of sorts uh, when I work from home. Desk, kitchen table, couch, floor, guest guest room, bed. Nowhere is off limits. Um, And I can kind of relate to that. Uh, I, I work... I don't know, equally, I, I work probably, I don't know, 70% in the studio uh, where I do my day job, and then probably the other 30% doing freelance work, editing this podcast, things like that at home. So it's just my laptop and these Sony headphones. Um, I just take them with me wherever. And so if, um, if somebody is using the living room, I'll go downstairs or, you know, sit on my bed or on the couch and just kind of work wherever I can find space. Yep. Yep. And I remember when you say going downstairs, the, the basement with the Christmas lights and yes. all that, all that stuff from the podcast not too long ago. <laughs> nice but we are so basement. thankful that you are able to be mobile and just continue to produce the, the greatest production of, of of podcasts in the history of the world. I think (laughs) Um, I really enjoyed what Lindsay said on Facebook. She said, my workspace is mobile. I teach middle school and this year the teachers are moving room to room. So all my stuff is on a cart. Then some days I work from home and set up in our office or our computer space or the couch. Basically I am flexible. And if there is not a truer statement, goodness, teachers, are being flexible this year and we just want to send a shout out to to any educators that that know the plight of of teaching in a pandemic thank you so much um, for what you're doing Um, currently my office is well in the basement but normally i i am also like you michael i like to go to to my real office especially if i'm meeting with clients just because there is it is like a sanctuary and and so you know, couches, chairs, not not quite leather. I'm not not to that space yet, but one day, one day we'll get there. But it's it's definitely a space that's serene, that's calm, um, and that I, I really like to be when when I get the chance. So thank you for everyone's responses. We we definitely love hearing from you guys and we love to just keep interacting with you. So 
um, Michael, we're going to dive in here. And, and what I, how we typically start, and we start with every guest, we'll ask this set of questions. Um, that if the gospel is I am more loved than I imagine, and yet more sinful than I believe, when was the gospel first good news for you, and how is it still? Um, I would take issue with that definition of the gospel, first of all, to be honest. Okay. Um, I don't see that the story of God presumes that we are more sinful than we believe. I would say that we're more loved than we know and believe, but that we're more broken than we understand. And that our sinful behaviors flow and overflow out of our brokenness. Now, to be clear, I I believe that we come into the world as sinners. Uh, And I I think that my homardiology or my theology of sin is actually very, very deep. And I take it very seriously as you read in my book, you know, the the consequences of my sin were profound, devastating and betraying Mm -hmm. to my wife. Um, And that what Jesus did on the cross is, is the most important thing in the universe. But I talk about in a clearer way since I wrote the book, five aspects of brokenness. And I list them in terms of how we typically understand them. And the first is wickedness, and that is the sin that you referred to. Mm -hmm. We think that wickedness is really bad sin or the deepest, darkest sin. And and wickedness is really in the Isaiah 53 passage that all of us are like sheep and we turn away. Mm -hmm. Sin is about autonomy and independence from God. And that decision that goes back to Genesis 3, as opposed to a judgment upon our personhood. So with people that are deeply broken, and especially people that come for counseling, and they're carrying so much shame, the emphasis upon the gospel as God's love for us and the depth of our sin oftentimes becomes a barrier. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we're, we're sinful, but our wickedness stems from our woundedness, Mm -hmm. from warfare, which are the accusations and the lies against us that generally fall into our wounds, from our weaknesses, which is not our our lack of trusting God and us thinking, well, uh, Philippians says that in 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so I'm weak and I'm gonna ask him Mm -hmm. to make me strong, but really our weaknesses in scripture are something that we're meant to surrender and to trust God with. So our weaknesses are our vulnerabilities and limitations. And then finally, our wiring. So wickedness, weakness, woundedness, warfare, and wiring. And when we take into account all of those aspects, I would say that we are more loved than we know. And the the wickedness that plays out in our lives is the result of this independence from God and um, not trusting him with our vulnerabilities, which is Mm -hmm. the original issue in Genesis 3, not knowing and surrendering and allowing Jesus access to our wounds, believing the lies and the accusations of the warfare, and then not understanding the idea of embodiment or how we're wired neurologically. And I appreciate your book where there was so much of an emphasis on trauma and how Uh, you included that as part of the conversation in our sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so back to your original question, the the gospel is everything to me. It's why Mm -hmm. I get out of bed in the morning. And I will often say uh, the gospel is what I have tattooed on my arms. Um, 
I'm not a tattoo guy, but my son said, let's go get one before I move out of state. And I'm left-handed. And so, or I'm sorry, I'm right-handed. Sorry. Yeah, you're doing an arm <laughs> pump there. Everybody in my family is left-handed but me. So I'm oh, right-handed. Wow. And my left arm represents the things I hate. My weaknesses, my vulnerabilities, my limitations. If I were to, I have dysgraphia, so I can barely write with my right hand. So on my left forearm, right above my wrist, it says, be loved, which of course is two words. If you join them together is beloved, which is our identity in Christ. On my right arm, right above my wrist, those are my strengths. Those are the things by which I take hold of the world. It says, be still. Hmm. And so the gospel is be loved, be still. Uh, and as we live that out with Jesus as the picture of what God's like, that's good news. That's really good news. And uh, we, we know who God is in this case, and we know how to live. Mm-hmm. Much longer answer than I think you wanted. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was a good answer. And as, as far as the definition of the gospel, I'll let you talk to Kurt Thompson and Tim Keller about that. I'm not going to argue with you there. Um, you know, but you mentioned, okay, you, you, you're a master of alliteration, apparently. You got all these W words, uh, wickedness, uh, wounding, warfare, wiring. What was the fifth one? Uh, warfare. Weakness. Wickedness, wickedness, wiring, warfare. Was there only four of them? Uh, wickedness, woundedness, weakness, warfare, and wiring. Weakness is the one I forgot. Yeah. And and so you, you've got those four W's. And when you were talking about wickedness, like obviously you have a history with all of those W's. And there's a history of a moment in time when um, maybe it was a slow progression or maybe it was just this just immense encounter with the love of God. Um, do you remember when you maybe came face to face with those spaces and then really felt kind of that palpable love of God that just broke through? Yeah, fantastic question, because I think there's a distinction. I became a Christian in 1980 after growing up Roman Catholic, made my confirmation in uh, eighth grade. And strangely, confirmation is supposed to be, I believe this, I'm going to live in this. And my parents and many Catholic parents said, okay, go believe what you want to believe and you don't have to go to church. So for about four years, I just fell away from any faith and was hostile to it in general. Through Young Life, had a dramatic conversion. And um, uh, really, my life changed dramatically in 1980. But it wasn't until 1994, 14 years later, with huge sections of the Bible memorized, 6 a.m., He-Man, Saturday morning Bible study, um, evangelism, discipleship training, really excellent grounding. It wasn't until 14 years later that I came to encounter the love of God. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that um, I never got to a place where in community and with others, I was known. You mentioned Kirk Thompson a minute ago. He's uh, become a good friend. And, you know, his whole ministry and writing as a psychiatrist and neuroscientist is the, the biblical idea of being known. And that's how transformation happens. And to me, it's very sad that the way the gospel was taught to me was you are loved and we can't earn our salvation. It's by grace, not by works, so that no man should boast. But then as I became a Christian, it was like I had to flex my moral muscles and get my act together. Mm-hmm. So I struggled with this massive sense of God really uh, doesn't like me, 
and I'm not sure that he loves me, and I'm not sure that he's for me, even though I could articulate the good news and share it with other people, I couldn't internalize it within myself because the shame was so deep. Um, so I lived with this chronic sense of, I need to have more quiet times consecutively. I need to pray harder. Um, I need to do more for God so that somehow I encounter the key that opens the door where I can step into this room and this life that I was created for, which is freedom. So on the best and worst day of my life, July 10th, 1994, when my double life was exposed three years into my marriage, that's when I encountered the love of God. Now, is that when I was saved? Yes. But was I saved in 1980? Yes. And does that mean that we're not saved once and for all? No. But that we all experience ongoing conversions of our heart where the love of God in the Holy Spirit gets down into the nooks and crannies of who we are, or more accurately, Christ already dwells in us and the Spirit is there, and the Spirit comes up and out of those nooks and crannies as the layers of shame and the layers of lies and the, the rubble of trauma and things like that begin to fall away. But when I encountered that love in 1994, it, it set me on a very, very different course that wasn't just about sobriety, but freedom. And I make that mm -hmm. distinction in Surfing for God that um, you know many men who are struggling with porn or sexual addiction, compulsion, sexual sin, they're just trying to get sober. They're just trying mm -hmm. to stop. And that's great, but if you understand the distinction between sobriety and freedom, it actually allows you to set your eyes and your heart and your mind on something much bigger than sin management. And it mm -hmm. leads oftentimes to uh, a longer journey of freedom and healing, but it's deeper and it really addresses the problem at a root issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I mean, as you're talking, just your story, I am hearing my story in that because that, that was my life too, that double life, trying to just manage and be good and be, make the right choices. And that we're, we're pretty good in the church. I, I feel like we're pretty good at making Pharisees. And, and understanding like that, that we try and strive and strive and strive. But yeah, it's not until that love of God just is this felt sense was there the whole time yet all the shame was in the way of it and all that hiddenness and all of that stuff to, to fully be known by him. It, and it, yeah, it, it, it can really change things. And so obviously part of the way that it has changed you has been to speak up and speak out and do all this research and work into places, especially with sexuality and sexual addiction, pornography addiction. Um, you know, and, and when I look at this year in particular, I feel like all of our addictions are, are kind of on the rise. We're all looking for, for things. It seems like the only, um, media the only places that are doing well are you know your video games your your alcohol you know all of our vices and one of those being specifically pornography has seen something like a, a 10 to 20 percent increase in usage during the time of the pandemic um you know and are there reasons you know your your book called surfing for god like are there reasons in particular that you think that this this avenue of going and trying to have our needs met is something that is so alluring and entrapping for people. Yeah, so we do know about the statistics where this has increased. And yet when we're in non-pandemic times and those statistics might be lower, the struggle is just internal. Mm 
our sexuality is so core to who we are as human beings, we can't avoid it. And if we understand sexuality biblically and historically, it's about something so much more than our genitals and what we might describe as sexual orientation. And it's about something so much more than what we do in the bedroom. Our sexuality really is Genesis 1 and 2. It's about the image of God in us made as male and female. And um, I forget who it was, but I read some author that they said that they were around Mother Teresa and she was one of the sexiest human beings they ever met. And, you know, I did a double take like, whoa, you know, she was four foot 11 and shriveled and, and covered in basically the, the Indian version of a burqa. And what they meant was that she had an eros, uh, a dynamic life-giving energy within mm -hmm. her. And we might call it holiness and wholeness, that that was something that, that came up and out of her and resonated in a sense of joy and aliveness in her being mm -hmm. that truly was a kind of sexuality. You mentioned uh, my book, and I'll talk about the title because it came out right around the time that uh, Bethany Hamilton wrote her book, Soul Surfer. She's the woman that had her arm uh, mm -hmm. taken off by a shark while surfing. And so people confuse surfing for God and soul surfer. And uh, it's based on an alleged quote by G.K. Chesterton, who said, the man knocking on the brothel door is knocking for God. I heard that decades ago. And as I was going through my own story and my healing and my journey of recovery, and as I was writing this book, that became the metaphor that um, beneath all of our compulsions and addictions, but probably nowhere more profound than in our sexuality, we're actually searching for God. We're knocking on the brothel door for God. And therefore, uh, the person who is surfing the internet for porn today or cyber uh, texting or sexting or whatever our acting out is, we're actually searching for God. Aquinas said in the 13th century, he said that every sinful behavior is rooted in a legitimate God-given appetite. So during the pandemic, as we are disconnected, isolated, stressed, unemployed, grieving, afraid, um, pressure, you know, we both talked about at the top of the show and you asked your listeners about space and place. Uh, we're, we're displaced, we're dislocated. Uh, we're, we're ticked off that our wireless <laughs> bandwidth is not strong enough. And so, you know, our spirituality and our relationship with Jesus is really based on what we do with the restlessness and the discontent mm -hmm. and the brokenness inside of us. And none of us by nature are good at stewarding that restlessness and that brokenness mm -hmm. well. And unfortunately, we don't speak enough about it. So, you know, kudos to you and your wife for podcasts like this that put words to the hole in the heart. Taught a class at Denver Seminary um, for about five years called uh, Addictions and Counseling. So it was a graduate level course for folks doing addictions. And on the first day, I'd, I'd start with what is an addiction? You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, variation on how yeah. that's defined clinically, scientifically, etc. And I would always start with this, this cartoon. It was like a Gary Larson cartoon taken from page one of Addiction for Dummies. No kidding. Graduate level class, Addiction for Dummies. And it was a cartoon where 
there was this giant heart with a hole in it. And there's a guy standing there talking to a, another person saying, it's about the hole in the heart, dummy. And so we're trying to heal that hole. We're trying to bind up that hole. We're trying to mm -hmm. fill that hole in a way where we can experience wholeness. And only when our hearts are whole and that, that hole is uh, repaired, can our heart, which is a container of sorts for love, only then can our heart hold love. So there's a, so much more brokenness. And let me say it this way, there's more holes in our heart during the pandemic. But more importantly, the pandemic is exposing what's been there all along. Mm -hmm. And um, in that sense, it's a gift to help us see uh, our inner reality. And, you know, I would never wish it upon anybody. And I pray that it will go away tomorrow and that vaccines mm -hmm. will save lives. But whenever there's uh, any kind of suffering, it becomes an opportunity and it's a bridge to becoming who we are to living in our union with Christ as opposed to a barrier. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and, and I think you're, you're a hundred percent correct that as we, as our normal rhythms of life have been paused, have been interrupted, we, we are just seeing a lot more holy hearts. And I was about to say holiness, but a lot more whole filledness in, in people's actions. And I guess when, when you see that, and, and one of the things that when, when people come into my counseling office, we inevitably have to talk about accountability. That's something they're, they're wanting to put the software on their phones and their computers. And I'm like, great, do it. It's definitely helpful. Definitely something that you should have. Um, but then inevitably we have to shift to what is true accountability. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, you were the one that coined the phrase cardiologist, not cops. Was that from yes. you? Yeah. Okay. And and so can you can you dive into that, into what is the difference between a cardiologist and a cop when it comes to to accountability? Yeah, I I put this together, the metaphor, and it's funny that you say I'm the alliteration guy because I almost never use that um uh, in, in conversation, but I think it's just helpful when we're reading. Um, it's actually three distinctions, cop accountability, coach accountability, and then cardiologist, because the, I've seen all three of these. And so any listener is going to go, um, accountability, oh, great. I did a survey once when I was uh, speaking somewhere spontaneously, and I, I, I asked the audience to shout out words that came to mind for association when they heard the account, word accountability. And they'd, they'd say things like pressure, shame, um, deceit. Uh, so, you know, most men for accountability end up lying. That's what mm -hmm. addicts do. I did that myself. I remember sitting mm -hmm. with Larry Crabb, my, my mentor through the uh, 90s, uh, who's one of the patriarchs of, of Christian counseling and a great thinker and writer. And we were sitting in a hotel in Atlanta, and um, I said I wanted to talk about my sexual struggle, which already at that moment was a euphemism because I had already been unfaithful to my wife. And uh, he said, sure, let's, let's talk about it. And I said, I'm, I'm kind of sort of struggling with lust. And it was way more than that. And he asked me, before we start, have you ever been unfaithful to your wife? And this was in 93, so prior to the proliferation of the internet. Looked him in the eye and lied to him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm a believer, 13 years at that point. I'd like to think I had a high level of integrity. I'm sitting with one of the best Christian counselors in the world. What an opportunity, right, for freedom. And I lied to him. And so cop accountability is 
typically what we see, and it's based on this idea, okay, we're going to agree to go out for pancakes every Saturday morning or some day of the week, and I'm going to confess my sin to you, and you're going to say, okay, thanks for letting me know, and it's implicit in this, but I'm going to feel shame by virtue of telling you that. And the motivation is that if I anticipate or know that I'll feel shame, then I won't do something. Well, that's the law. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a time and a place for cop accountability. If my best friend is having an affair, I'm going to get in his face and say, dude, you need to stop. So I'm going to write him a ticket, if you mm-hmm. will. But it's not shame-based. Dallas Willard called this the sin management approach. And unfortunately, the way we talk about the gospel, most of us don't know more than sin management. Willard said that, that most Christians are caught between ceaseless striving and their brokenness. And they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But the gospel presents us another way. So we don't have to ceaselessly strive, and nor do we need to live in our brokenness. And so... Uh, Cop accountability really is very external, behavioral, and shame-based. Take it to another level, and that's coach accountability. And this has a better intention. It's less focused on shame, which, by the way, always fuels the addictive cycle. Mm-hmm. But the, the coach is, I'm going to come alongside you, and I might give you information, and I might teach you about lust and porn and what I've learned, and I might, I might invite you into a group, and we're going to start to really try to focus on getting free. And it's still external, but it's less shame-based, and it's more inspiration-based, and we all need mm-hmm. to be inspired. But if I don't have the coach there, then um, I'm still kind of dependent on that person. And to be clear, we need coach accountability. But the, the d- deepest kind of accountability, and it's rare to find real freedom apart from this, is cardiologist. And that's that we're sitting with somebody who really is there for the welfare of our heart and for us coming back to what God says about us in the midst of our darkest day and our worst sin, coming back to what's true about us as new covenant image bearers, that our heart of stone has been turned to a heart of flesh that we have um, a new purity in Christ, because as Ezekiel 36 says, we've been sprinkled with clean water. We have a new identity. Uh, We have a new nature and a new power. And to sit with people under those conditions can be a really wonderful thing. Um, In the weekends that we do, the Surfing for God weekends, and within the circles of men, we'll, we'll greet one another with the question, how's your heart? And the first couple times, a man hears that, he'll kind of look like, what? You know, well, my cholesterol level is pretty good, and I just had a physical. But we don't often think about, how is your heart? And one of the common responses is, well, you know, Jeremiah says, my heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Well, that is not just Old Testament, but it's Old Covenant. And I have a chapter in my book that's been a little bit controversial called Your Good Heart. And Jeremiah 17 says, yes, your heart's wicked and deceitful, but Jeremiah 31 is one of the classic three big passages in the Old Testament that talk about the new covenant. When Jesus uh, had the Last Supper, and we hear him teach about this in John 6, and then at the Last Supper, he said, this is the blood of a new covenant. And that Mm -hmm. is a whole new arrangement and a whole new agreement where our wicked heart 
is made new and made good at its core because of our union with Christ. And so when a person sits with a cardiologist accountability uh, partner, therapist, and as a therapist, you, you know, get to do this in beautiful ways that you, you see the deeper issues there, it really becomes freeing. And I like to use the metaphor that the first two kinds of accountability are about taking a spigot, like the, the brass spigot at the side of a house, and those are about trying to shut off the bad flow that's coming out with the assumption that what is on the other side of the wall and where that pipe goes to is a cesspool. And so there's, you know, sewage coming out. So I better turn that off. Well, that's a law-based old covenant model. But the new covenant is that that spigot goes to a stream of living water. And like uh, uh, Psalm 46 says, that there is a river running within that makes glad the city of God. Well, Jerusalem had no river. That's referring to the believer. And so to sit with someone going, your heart is thirsty. You long for connection, comfort, power, validation of your manhood or womanhood. Uh, There's these legitimate God-given desires there. Your heart is thirsty, and you're looking to broken cisterns, and you don't even know that there's a river within. How can we access that? How can we open up that faucet? How can we uh, cultivate living in union with God that uh, satisfies the deep hunger of our heart so that we don't turn to what is bitter trying to satisfy our hunger and our thirst? So cardiologist accountability is really what leads to freedom, and understanding those three levels can make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know they've made a big, a big difference in my life. And, and yeah, it's, it's always, I guess, surprising to people when they, when they come into my office that we'll talk about the porn struggle. We'll talk about the, whatever the sexual, sexual struggle is, quote unquote, but, but we spend so much more time talking about the other direction. Okay. How can we how can we get to that heart issue? How yeah. can we how can we actually look at that and not just see where it's coming out into sexual things, but to see, okay, how is your chasing after, you know, belonging and inclusion and, and connection and all these things, how is that happening in other areas of your life exactly. too? Exactly. Man, that's so good. You know, and that tells me without even knowing you very much that you're doing great therapy and great work and counseling. You know, some of the, I have this document I've been working on, and we're hopefully going to publish it early in the new year. It's called 77 Questions for Amazing Accountability. And, you know, it's one of these lead generators that we're hoping to draw people in and they go, whoa, this isn't what I thought it was. But some of the best questions for accountability, like you said, have nothing to do with sex. Eugene Peterson paraphrased 1 Corinthians 6.16 in the message. He said, sex is more than mere skin on skin. It's as Mm -hmm. much spiritual mystery as physical fact. So it's not talk about sin or talk about your relationship with Jesus. All of it plays out on the horizontal level relationally. So Mm -hmm. sometimes the best question for a man struggling with porn is, where are you scared of your wife? What are conversations that you don't want to have or you keep putting putting off? At work, where do you struggle with being a people pleaser? What makes you irritable and angry? Mm How are you sleeping lately? Um, What's it like to be a dad with each of your kids at their different stages and where do you feel inadequate? What do you do with your vulnerability? Those questions get into the heart and they're all the things that fuel the sexual struggle. By the way, I referred to men 
And I wrote Surfing for God for Men, but if I, if I rewrote it today, I would write it for men and women because mm-hmm. I don't even like to look at the statistics, but compulsive sexual struggle is exactly the same for men and women. It may just play out in different ways. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing, I'm really glad you said that. The, the funny thing is all those questions you ask, like, where are you scared of sharing something with your spouse? Where are you struggling with people pleasing at work or with the kids? And all of those questions are things that you could ask to anyone, male, female, it does not matter. You could ask it and all of them would have some area of just deep questioning where they would have to say, yeah, I see a lot of that in myself in this area or that area. And so it doesn't always come out in porn, but I, what I love about the fact that that this is a heart issue. This is a deep longing, a good longing for a heart that's being misaligned and misdirected. Is there, when it comes to pornography, there is so much misunderstanding. There's there's so much like where this, there's this unequal playing field where, where for men, it's often seen as this heartless, purely animalistic kind of sexual deviancy. Whereas, whereas the, the, places that that women struggle even if it's with porn honestly it's it's assumed that there's that there is an emotional component but the truth is there is a highly emotional heart component no matter who it is and and so there's this very equal struggle there's this very equal understandable bridge that we all should be able to understand even if we don't understand the outpouring we we understand that center that heartfelt need that other people are, are dealing with and really searching for. And so I love just that direction in your book and in the way you talk about this. Um, this has been a hard time for a lot of people. And, and there, I, I know I've met with people that are like, man, I was clean for five years, seven years. And, and in the last few months I've looked and now I'm back where I started. And there's this just immense disappointment in themselves. There's this immense shame that, that they might feel. But when you look at right now, the time that we are living in, why is now a good time for someone, well, I was about to say to eradicate porn use, but to pay attention to their heart? Well, that's a great question, whether it's eradicate porn use or pay attention to their heart, because our hearts were meant to live. In Isaiah 55, uh, the invitation, it's Jesus speaking through Isaiah, and he's, um, uh, you know, Jesus was speaking out of this context in John 7 when he stood up and said in a great loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and streams of living water will flow. And it's interesting, we don't often think about that word if, it's a contingency. Some people are thirsty and some people are not aware of their thirst but we're all thirsty. And thirst is really the biblical word for our deep desires, our longings, our yearnings. And indeed, all of our lust beneath our lust, and lust isn't just sexual. I can, you know, I collect watches, mostly cheap watches, and I can lust for the next greatest watch. And I could say, you know, someday I'd like to have blank watch. And I'll I'll never have that because if I was a billionaire, I wouldn't spend $18,000 $18,000 on that watch, but that can be my new present addiction. Mm-hmm. And 
there's nothing wrong with going to that website. There's nothing wrong with going, wow, the bezel on that watch is beautiful in the same way that I might have used to look at porn. But if that becomes a preoccupation and if that's my default setting for where I go with my restlessness, my heart will not live. My heart will not thrive. And I'm not talking about eternal life and death. Uh, I'm talking about the well-being, the flourishing. And so in Isaiah 55, it says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And then this wonderful, confusing phrase, you who have no money, come buy and eat the richest of fare. And then it repeats it again, you who have no money. In God's economy, if you will, the only way that we can buy and sell, the only way that we can receive the goods, quote unquote, of his kingdom, the only way that we can experience the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control is by saying, I've got nothing. My emotional, spiritual, relational credit card is maxed out. I've been turned down for a new credit card. My checking account is in the red. Uh, I lost my wallet. So God, I've got no game. I can't pay. I've flexed my moral muscles. I've tried really hard to stop looking at porn, but here's, here's the deal, God. Um, I simply can't do this. And I can't do one more Philippians 4.13 that Christ is going to strengthen me and get me over this. It's actually the recognition of my weakness, my vulnerability, my inability to satisfy my thirst on my own. And, you know, this is where the 12 steps get the first step that I admitted that I was powerless over mm -hmm. fill in the blank, alcohol, sex, shopping, gambling, and that my life had become unmanageable. It's, mm -hmm. it's the, the gospel right there. And so um, our hearts are restless and hurting and disconnected. And it's an opportunity to say, I've got no game and the thirst of my soul is still there. And I think that the pandemic has brought thirst to the surface. Most of us live life going, eh, I'm good. You know, I'm a Christian. Uh, no one in my family is, is struggling too, too bad. And I know that there are listeners who have lost loved ones. I'm talking about kind of normal life under mm -hmm. normal conditions. And, and our biggest sin becomes that we settle for good enough as opposed to for the abundant life. And I think one of the things God is doing on the planet through racial turmoil and political turmoil and economic uh, devastation and death is he's awakening thirst to the more, to the mm -hmm. kingdom for on earth as it is in heaven and for in Michael as it is in heaven. And I see um, the pornography struggle, back to your question, because sorry, I, I derail myself and I go on rabbit right. trails, but that the porn struggle has awful, devastating, demonic consequences in our world, but it's a wonderful opportunity for the church to speak into. I see it more as a bridge to knowing God more deeply and for others to see the heart of God than a barrier. And, you know, if I look back nine years ago, almost when Surfing for God was written, the number of ministries, podcasts, counselors, um, who are speaking out the recent work that uh, Layla, Layla Michael White at um, uh, Trafficking Hub uh, out of Excess Cry, the work that they're doing to shut down Pornhub and the demonic um, uh, 
presence of, of children on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this growing movement that is the kingdom that starts one, one heart and one soul at a time. So the work that you're doing, brother, and the work that you and your wife do with your writing and your podcast, you guys are, are affecting so many hearts and lives. And when you sit and have conversations with a man, with a couple, with a woman, mm-hmm. about the, the calibrations of their heart and what they're doing with their brokenness, that's the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just such a joy to do this work and to sit with people, and especially out of our own stories and out of the hope mm-hmm. and the redemption that we've been given, to say, there's hope. It's real. You can be free. You can be whole. Um, it just becomes an opportunity to talk about Jesus mm-hmm. yeah. in, a, in a rich and non-religious way, though. <laughs> yeah. How do you, because I, I, I know that for me, because, you know, I am a, a speaker, writer, me and Lori, we, we go around and we've talked about this. People can look at someone like me. People can look at someone like you and, and say, well, you're a quote unquote kind of super Christian. You're one of those special people that actually gets freedom from this. And I haven't. I haven't gotten that. I, you know, and there's this this sense of, well, I'm not good enough. How would you respond if someone is feeling like I've tried to walk away? I have tried and tried and tried to, to put porn behind me or put watches behind me, whatever, whatever the struggle is, like whatever the place we go to with our empty heart, how would you respond to someone and say, and, and to give them hope? Yeah, it's a wonderful question because, you know, I'm a pastor at heart. I'm an ordained minister as well as a licensed therapist. And, and really my, my deepest vocational identity is a pastor. And so I want to care for people's hearts. The first thing is I always talk about my present struggle. Uh, I've gone places and my story, you know, I got free 26 years ago. And mm-hmm. so there's especially younger men who will go, well, that's nice 26 years ago, but um, what about today? So, you know, I'll just give you an example. Um, I have bipolar disorder and I'll speak about that. And people go, oh, okay, well, he's, he's still broken. Two years ago, at 54 years old, I was diagnosed with Asperger's. So uh, I'm on the autism spectrum, and I'm atypical. But that has explained a lot and has been a massive barrier between my wife and I. And so I can relate to your book in a lot of ways, where in a mixed orientation marriage, my wife and I have a mixed neurological marriage. She's neurotypical. Mm-hmm. I'm neurodiverse. And man, does that create struggle. Um, I struggle with food. I spent all of last year before the pandemic going to Overeaters Anonymous because mm-hmm. my food compulsion was so out of control. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. You know, I could keep going. I'm, I'm half the diagnoses in the DSM. But the bottom line is, I am a child. Mm-hmm. My, my deepest identity, if I say I'm a beloved son, that means I'm a child of a father and of a parent. And as a child, I feel pretty fragile in the world sometimes. And I certainly feel fragile right now. And um, I feel a lot of things inside that I don't want to feel. And honestly, I don't handle those any better than anyone else. And there are no super Christians. You know, we see this all the time with the latest greatest sexual scandal with Mm -hmm. a pastor 
the people that we hold up and we exalt, uh, and our ministry works almost exclusively with leaders, um, it's often the case that the people that we hold up as the most mature are the ones that are the most broken inside because they don't have permission Hmm. by virtue of their role to actually be known in those places. So I've got to constantly preach the gospel to myself, and that means a call to humility. Hmm. Uh, And I've been given the gift of authenticity where I have very little shame, if, if any, of talking about my present struggle. And I think that's invitational to people mm-hmm. to not just say, maybe I could get over porn, but maybe I could live this way where I'm known. Mm-hmm. The second part is in relation to that person that asked that question. I'll tell you the story of my friend who's 29 years old. Um, we were having a conversation one day, and this, this guy's like a little brother to me. And uh, he said, I'm I'm struggling with masturbation worse than ever before. He didn't even look at porn. It was just internal fantasy masturbation that was really self-soothing based on some profound attachment wounds that he had where he wasn't seen, soothed, safe, and secure growing up. And uh, I said to him, I said, if you masturbated five times more than you are right now every day, for the rest of your life and you live to be a hundred years old, could God love you? And he thought and thought, and he said, yeah, but that's his job. You know, God is love. And I said, if you did the same struggle that intensified for the next 70 years, could God like you? And he said, absolutely not. Hmm. I said, fill in this blank based on my ongoing worsening masturbation struggle. God feels blank with me, filled in the blank, disappointed, Hmm. frustrated. Then I said to him, just to mess with them, I said, well, you're not a Christian. And he laughed like, yeah, right. Because of course he's a Christian, but he, he didn't be, he wasn't able to apply and internalize the beauty of God's heart and the good news. And I said to him, and this might be controversial, I said, tomorrow, I want you to masturbate as much as you can, and you're free to do so. Read the book of Galatians, that uh, God's not encouraging sin, but he's saying that your relationship with him is no longer based on how much you sin. So when I said, go masturbate tomorrow even more, he just kind of smiled. But guess what? He came back to me and he said, "Um, I masturbated, I didn't do it more, but I didn't feel shame. And I did a fist bump and a high five because shame, as Andy Comiskey says, and I quote him in my book, it's like a raincoat over the soul that repels the living water of Jesus that would otherwise establish us as his beloved. And at the end of the day, God doesn't want obedient people. He wants their heart. Matthew 15, he said to the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus about hand washing, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me and your worship is in vain. Guess what? When that man didn't feel shame, he was actually able to begin to see what was below the surface. And today he's a man who's relatively free where that Mm -hmm. compulsion has been broken, but more so the compulsion 
and the reflex of shame has been broken. And making the distinction for your listeners that you've probably talked about, and I know there's a lot of different ways of describing this, guilt is I've done bad, shame is I am bad, guilt is I am wrong, uh, or I've done wrong, and shame is that I am wrong. And again, Mm -hmm. a biblical understanding of sin is not that we're bad, it's that we're autonomous, that we're independent, that we choose disconnection as opposed to connection and trust. And um, man, it allowed the good news and the love of God to kind of sink in to the, to the, to the soil of his heart. So I think that um, just pressing away at the God loves you, period, not as you should be, not as you would be, but that's what sets us free. Uh, we, we really long to be known as we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. So true that we all long to be loved. We all long to be known and seen as we are. And just thank you for that, that beautiful encouragement that, that our real enemy is, is that shame and disconnection that, that comes along with it. And our goal is to just attach well, not even to attach, to allow ourselves to feel the already present love of God over us um, and to, to act more and more out of that, that kind of loving embrace, that, that, that draw toward him. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time and just the wisdom that you've, you've given to our listeners, the, just the heart that you have for people who are, who are wrestling with, with wounded broken hearts and and that are are looking for that completion that fulfillment ultimately in christ but it might be misaligned and so thank you for that encouragement thank you for the work that you do and we're just so delighted to have you on the show today truly my pleasure and thank you for all that you and your wife are doing for your counseling ministry and uh just for being a, a warrior for freedom and the good news Guys, we are so thankful that we had Michael on today. And if you want to check out more of his stuff, go and find his podcast, Restoring the Soul. Go grab his book, Surfing for God. And in the show notes, we will put links to to his website, his organization, if you want to find out all the other stuff that he's up to. Um, We were so, so blessed to have him today. Question of the week for next week. If you could renovate one room of your house or apartment, what would it be? We'd love to hear back from you. Follow Lori on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. She's most active on Instagram. Um, but look her up, Lori Krieg. Um, and if we would love to hear your answer to the question of the week. We want to say thanks again to Michael John Cusick for the time that he spent with us today. And for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. <laughs>